HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin leads the nation in the production of specialty cheeses, accounting for 47% of the total? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Cutting the Curd. This is your host, Elena Santagade, and today I'm very excited to kick off a new series here at Cutting the Curd, Women in Cheese. As some of our listeners may know, I organize a group here in New York by the same name. Amazing acronym, by the way. We are the witches. Women in Cheese grew organically a little over four years ago, and we didn't have much of an agenda at first. We currently have 130 members, and some combination of those members gather together every month or two to connect in person. My inspiration for building this group comes from one of my all-time sheroes, Madeline Albright. Now, this is going to be a little non-cheese tangent, but don't worry, listeners, we're going to get back to the curd here. When Secretary Albright first went to the UN in 1993, she decided to invite all the female ambassadors to her house for a gathering. It turned out there were only seven, including her. They dubbed themselves the G7 and made a point to meet in private at all UN gatherings around the world and to take a girl pledge. The pledge was that they would always take each other's phone calls, no matter what. What started as a social gathering wound up becoming an extraordinary network of powerful women who together brought political change around the world. They still meet to this day, and there are about 30 of them now. So as part of this new Women in Cheese series here on Cutting the Curd, I'll be bringing witches on air to talk about their personal stories, the challenges facing women in the cheese industry today, and the state of women in cheese in general. I'm thrilled to have Tess McNamara here on the studio to help kick things off. Thanks for joining me, Tess. Thank you for having me, Elena. So... Tess has lived what many might consider the ultimate cheese dream life. (laughs) After ditching a corporate paralegal job to attend grad school at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Bra, Italy, Tess cut her teeth behind the counter at Giolito Formaggi. 
She went on cheese-buying trips through the Italian countryside on motorcycle and eventually made her way down to the Amalfi Coast to intern with a budding farm restoration project in Praiano. Tess split her time between the Amalfi Coast and Bra as she finished her graduate program, then traveled up to England to intern with Mary Quick of Quick's Cheddar. Back in the States, Tess worked as a cheesemonger at Formaggio Kitchen Essex, was the assistant cave manager at Murray's, and is now the director of retail and operations at Lucy's Way, originally located in Chelsea Market, and now it's a shop on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Wow, Tess, where to begin? So let's start with our Women in Cheese series theme as we talk about the amazing experiences you've had in Italy and England. Traveling alone as a woman can sometimes be intimidating. That fear definitely informed choices I know I made, or to be honest, didn't make in my 20s when I had opportunities to travel solo. So as you embarked on your graduate program in Bra and then the traveling afterwards, did you have any reservations about traveling solo? Was that something you'd already done? Oh, absolutely. I'd always loved travel, but travel in this case really turned into living abroad and living without a plan, Hmm. which is not really something I'm always great at. I knew I was going to grad school, and even that was a a feat in the sense that I loved, I did actually truly love the corporate firm I worked for in Boston because it wasn't cookie-cutter corporate. It was a very open forum. All of the partners had an open-door policy. They were all involved in the arts and sciences and wanted us to be as well-traveled as they were. One Hmm. of them even wrote logs and would have his uh, assistant type them up when he returned from voyages and we would that. all get to digest where he had been. <laughs> a little, like so, a little news newspaper from the, the vacations of yeah. the partners. You, you actually described it to me as a, a bit of a mom and pop law firm. Is that totally sort of how two you Harvard it? law grads who went in law school? They, you know, got their stripes elsewhere. They mm-hmm. worked the long hours, worked for the big firms. And eventually they founded their own firm and they really wanted it to a place where be a place where people came and they worked hard, but they also got to have a balance. Hmm. So, in, you know, in retrospect, I had four weeks vacation at the age of 22. Oh, snap. Uh, we worked long hours, <laughs> but we were encouraged to be ourselves. And I think in a way, even though they weren't grooming me to be a lawyer, which is where I thought I was heading, mm-hmm. they groomed me to be somebody to chase other things that Hmm. were important to me. So you did a lot of traveling when you were at the law firm ahead of this graduate school adventure. I took full advantage of, uh, I spent a lot more time with family for one than I do now, uh, sadly. But Mm. um, in retrospect, I I traveled to the Finger Lakes often. Mm -hmm. And I also went to Peru. I went to Ireland. I went to several other places in Europe when I was with them. And I I went to other places in the U.S. I had friends in California at that point. Hmm the Pacific Northwest. So I really got to understand how everyone in my life was doing and to see other places in mm. tandem with with working. Awesome. And I got involved with food, really, on, uh, in my free time because of the balance they gave me. Interesting. So then you, you ship off, you head to Italy, and you're solo. You, did, did you go with a friend or anybody you knew, or was this your own, your, an adventure of your own making? I, I didn't know a soul. No, I, I came to know many people who are near and dear to me and very important in my life now and became so then, but I didn't know anyone. Hmm. And so one of the, the people that you came to know, and a friend might be an understatement, mentor, in, uh, uh, 
overall cheese inspiration maybe is another one, uh, was the owner of the cheese shop where you first, you were basically a curious customer from what I understand, and then ended up hopping behind the counter and kind of learning the ropes. Uh, Fiorenzo, was that his name, the owner? Fiorenzo Gelito. Oh, very nice. So uh, I loved hearing when we talked before the show about your... Uh, your sort of budding friendship with Fiorenzo as you were in Bra. And, um, you know, you mentioned to me that he folded you into the shop, which I thought was such a great quote. And uh, it's just a hugely lucky break to have a cheese mentor take you under their wing like that. As a woman, it can be challenging to build close platonic relationships with men that are also, like, respectful and professional. And so, you know... I'm curious about how you, at the time, how you navigated that after coming from, even even though it sounds like a non-traditional law firm that you were at, it must have been a, a lot different of a relationship between what you were used to at work and working in the cheese counter at Giolito, huh? Indeed. He, I, I still don't know to this day why he has given me what he has, but he did open up his heart and his home, and he was generous beyond belief. And I think it truly was because I was curious. I asserted without much Italian at the time Mm. that I really wanted to learn what he was doing, what his family essentially is doing. And for some background, he is the third generation. Um, Before him, it was actually a matriarchal tradition. His grandmother led the business. And the business at heart was a market-based business. Mm -hmm. She went into the mountains and the Alps of Piedmont, and she brought back wares to Bra, which is essentially this perfect place, ge- you know, geographically to those valleys and those Alps to buy cheese, to age it, and to sell it. Wow. And even Bra Duro, the namesake, takes its name from Bra, but it's not made there. Hmm. It's just aged there. Hmm. And it, it really became, it's about an hour south of Torino, and it became historically an aging and a trading hub. Hmm. And Gilito's grandmother, I call him Gilito, but uh, most people do, but his first name is Ferenzo. Um, his grandmother took the lead and she cultivated relationships in both Piedmont and Liguria. Mm-hmm. And then his father took over. And he was actually sort of still in some ways is the kind of outspoken, um, comical black sheep of the family. His brother became a lawyer. His sisters became teachers. And he was this kid who sort of did well in school, but was always kind of breaking the rules, riding around on his motorcycle. Sounds like a few cheesemongers I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he didn't fall into it because he loved it. I think he loves it now and he appreciates that Hmm. he's able to bring his full self to work. He's found a way to make it his own, Mm -hmm. which I think is the case for many people in the cheese world. We all sort of come at it from these different directions. But Hopefully, at the end of the day, we find a place where we bring our full selves to work and we are uniquely us. Mm -hmm. And I think I saw that in him. And at the time, cheese was becoming something where I could be uniquely myself. Hmm. But it it was a challenge because eventually in graduate school, we had we had to write a thesis. And I knew that I was going to Priano and I knew I was going to be a part of this farm restoration project. But I had a month between starting that with really not much to do because Mm. classes were over. And at this point, it was almost a year into being in Bra, and he got to see me riding up on my bicycle, uh, initially Mm -hmm. with a classmate who is a dear friend who spoke more Italian than I did. A little help there, Uh, A little help. uh, (laughs) And other than my smile and, and sort of lighting up like a Christmas tree, she really helped facilitate 
what I would call the first buying trip with him, which literally was on the back of his motorcycle. Just wild. And I really did fear for my life because (laughs) Piedmont is beautiful, but on the back of a motorcycle, there are a lot of windy roads. Oh my gosh. Um, Did you wear a helmet? Oh, yes. Okay, good. I did wear a helmet. Uh, In the South... On Vespas, you didn't really wear a helmet, but that's that's, that's, another that's thing. part of the that's other chapter. <laughs> um, but in any event, we had gone on that trip, and he had taken me to a, a place that was very special where he wanted to see if cheese was essentially being made again. It was a place that his father had worked with. They had stopped making cheese, hmm. and they, the younger generation was beginning to make it again. So he was scouting. Exciting. And I got to experience what that is. My Let's goodness. scout for cheese. And, you know, all of the memories just have your senses involved, the smells on the back of that motorcycle. Right. The first time I got to smell a dairy and to taste raw milk in various places that he took me to, to shake the hand of someone who still had curd on their forearm. (laughs) He gave me those gifts, and I don't know how I will ever repay him, Hmm. but we had adventures together, and eventually it came to be where I had nowhere else to live as part of my grad program. Uh Uh-huh. Once my internship and apprenticeship was really over with him, I went to Priano. I I had also another amazing experience, but then I graduated and I came home for the first time in a year and I told my parents I was going back and I booked a one-way ticket. And I said, I'm going back to be a cheesemonger. And mm. I think that was that was really kind of scary for them. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's not what you expect your recent graduate school grad to say, maybe. No. You know, I, I think they, they've always been proud of me. And in, in fact, they are the reason I'm probably in food. I grew up with a family of gardeners and cooks. And, you know, there was always food and connection through food. Hmm. But this idea of a cheesemonger was very new to them. And they really were concerned about how I was going to make money. Right. At that point, though, you know, I, I had taken out loans to do everything. And I was just going to ride off what I had left of those loans. So it was also daunting for me. But I knew that there was something more that I had to learn from Ferenzo. And Mm. he was opening his door. And at that point, really kind of opening the door to his home as well. So I really did have to establish that I was there to learn. And um, as a gay woman, I had to come out to him. Interesting. And as an Italian, I was really scared. Yeah. I mean, almost as scared as the first time I came out to my own family and friends. Yeah, because you were already out among your community here in the States. And why do you think you were scared? What was frightening about that? I think the stereotypes of Italy as a culture with Catholicism at Mm. the helm Mm -hmm. and with the discrimination that comes in part from the principles of that religion. Right. Uh, You know, even today there's a very progressive pope, but at the time... I didn't know how he would react. I didn't know what would change. And you were already fairly close at this point. You had learned a lot from him, but you were heading back for this next chapter in the adventure. Yeah, I had apprenticed for a full month, and then I had been in the South for three months, and we had kept in touch. And Mm -hmm. I had come back up for my first cheese, which um, happens every two years in Bra. So I spent some time on the coast, and I I came back up for that Mm -hmm. in 2011. And I worked with him in his booth during Cheese. I didn't actually really meet any Americans Hmm. that I know now, interestingly enough. You had the full full Italian experience of Cheese and Bra. So how did he take it? Well, we were on another scouting trip, and we had stopped to picnic. And he really 
took it very well, but he didn't believe me initially. <laughs> there was sort of this like arms waving, like, what do you mean? That can't be. And you're questioning, uh, have I said this correctly in Italian? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> At that point, I knew the words for mold, la mufa, and the broom, la scopa, you know, Again, like Italian is really my first language and now I feel much more confident with it. But then it was really broken. Mm. So it was a daunting thing. But it the message got across and mm-hmm. uh, I have a great picture with him. We were actually chasing cheese and honey on that voyage. Um, us on the side of a road, you know, me and my windbreaker jacket with the motorcycle and him smoking a cigarette with his leather jacket. Amazing. The mountains in the background. I so it's, it's post, imprinted in more I ways than one. want to post this on the website for everyone to <laughs> see. It sounds incredible. And so he, it sounds like he was very accepting of you. He was. And I think as far as me, you know, then being a woman in my late 20s, asking for what I was asking for, really when I wasn't needed mm-hmm. in the shop, so to speak. I mean, I did things that helped, and I showed that I was there to work. And they certainly put me to work, and I dusted the mites off Castelmagno, and still one of my favorite cheeses and most visceral smells. Those but, aromas will be with you uh, forever. Forever. Uh, but no, he didn't. He didn't have any reason to do what he did, and I, you know, like I said, I will. I will be forever grateful. And he did become my mentor, and also by extension, his partner and now wife accepted me. And I think it was mm. an important line to draw in the sand for her too, mm. because. I think there's also some cultural uh, confusion there where I didn't speak Italian then proficiently, so I couldn't really communicate, I think, to her well enough, and there was some standoffishness. Yeah, that's like, a delicate hey, I'm here thing. to learn about cheese right, right. From, from your partner, and those are my intentions. And unfortunately, I think sometimes that, that has to be something that you establish. Right. Um, and sounds- we've seen that this year with with a lot of movements right I mean it's really so there were no me too moments um just to be clear but which um, is great it uh was something that I felt I had to establish Hmm. and then yes I I lived in a little apartment above the shop it was very much a pinch me life moment idyllic cheesemonger existence (laughs) yeah it's where I first listened to cutting the curd wow yeah I had to have some tunnel to what it was going on stateside and what this American cheese scene was hmm Wow, this is amazing. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to continue talking with our guest Tess here about her experience as a woman in cheese. Which... Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sierchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk 
fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. (laughs) Uh, I I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. This is your host, Elena Santigate, and I'm here talking with woman in cheese, Tess McNamara, about her journey to the professional cheese counter. So Tess, after your graduate program ended, you said goodbye uh, to the Farm Restoration Project in Campania and bid farewell to your friends at Giolito Formaggi in Bra. At, at this point, I think, I'm not sure if this is exactly what happened next or if it happened after you went back to Bra, but... Uh, I do know that you, at one point in this, in this segment, took a cheese-making deep dive, so to speak, and you spent a month participating in Transhumance with an Italian family in the Alps. Listeners, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, uh, I'm just going to ask our guest, actually. I, I, you don't need me to explain it. Let's, uh, let's hear about it from someone who's done it. <laughs> Tess, what is this word, Transhumance? And, and tell us, what, yeah, tell us what, what's the deal there. Of course. So la transumanza is what it is in Italian. And essentially, this is not really something that is well known domestically. I think that's an important place to start. It definitely goes back centuries. Uh, Really, let's go back to Sumerian times when they needed the lower lands to cultivate crops. Mm -hmm. So it was essential during the warmer periods of the year, let's say from May to October, that the animals grazed elsewhere. Mm. And this tradition came about where animals, especially milking animals and uh, animals being raised for meat, really they were kind of one and the same then, uh, moved to the higher lands, moved to these alpine pastures. So they're eating and and feeding on prolific grasses, wild herbs. Mm -hmm. The quality of the milk is exceptional and cheese is being made. And not just any cheese, but by and large what we know today as alpine cheeses Mm -hmm. because they couldn't. And really, it wasn't to their advantage to be making fresh cheeses. They may have made some just to eat up there for themselves, but they needed to be making cheeses that were going to be aged, uh, ideally for longer periods of time. So cooked pressed cheeses, alpine-style cheeses, um, where you're extracting whey, where you have the potential and 
to aged cheese and the parameters are there for you to do so because you're not making a high moisture cheese. Mm. So this is happening all over. Now, today, Italian governments, Swiss governments, French governments, and, and others continue to subsidize this tradition. So now it's really incentivized. There's not as much of a need to travel and move your whole family into the Alpine Valley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's a bit, so. of, bit of a jarring, <laughs> a jarring experience. Yeah, and I, this was, for me in 2012, and, you know, first of all, I should state, um, to participate in transhumanance or um, transhumanza, it's, it's a really hard thing. So I did this for a month, um, which is really a drop in the bucket. Mm. The people who do this and do it year in and year out, um, they are subject to all of the variables of weather. They are subject to being away from people they love. It can be a very isolating thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't want it to be you know, romanticized in that way. Yeah, I think it does get a, a bit romanticized uh, you know, at the counter a little bit. Yeah, and, and for good reason. I mean, it is it is bucolic. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also cold, and you are without a lot of what what we learn to rely on. Yeah, modern comforts. Um, I didn't check my email for a month. I barely got cell service, and this I didn't have a smartphone at the time, but I had this really tiny Italian phone, and <laughs> um, I had convinced Ferenzo that I wanted to do this, and he didn't really believe me, but eventually he sent me, and he actually sent me via motorcycle. This time it wasn't him driving <laughs> me, but it was his friend's nephew, and he took me all the way up. And I lived with this family, Beppe and his wife, Patrizia, and their three kids, who were at the time seven, eight, and nine, I believe. Or, wow. And and so it was feasible for them as, as a family, and they, they luckily had, you know, Le None below. So mm. they had the grandparents who were tending to other things at the home, who were still growing the crops that they would go down and get once a week or mm. twice a week and do the laundry. But he did it because his father had done it and his uncle had done it and Mm. I don't know what they're going to do when the kids get older and they're not going to want to live in the Alps but there was nothing right there was a small refuge and there was this house that he rented from the Italian government that had no electricity that had solar panels on it we didn't have any working refrigeration wow to keep the milk cold we ran spring water over it wow wow so okay so dialing back what did you expect from that experience going in and how was it how was it in reality when you were participating in it I kept a journal every day I should have brought it um it was so grounding I think I will never I don't want to say never it will be a rare occasion in my life going forward that I have that time to myself Uh, unless I really strategically make it happen, I suppose. But Mm -hmm. I think as we get older, experiences like that are rare. So for me, it was was challenging myself to this period of, of, even though I was with people, it was really a period of isolation. Mm -hmm. I would take walks every day by myself once I got lost and almost didn't find my way back to... (laughs) Lost in the Italian Alps. (laughs) Um, This radio show wouldn't happen. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be a witch. (laughs) Um, It... It was an amazing experience that I think transcended anything that I experienced thus far. And, it, you know, mind you, I, I was already very fortunate. I w- had worked with Ferenzo. I had worked on this amazing project in the South where I was connected with anybody from the, the local farmer and gardener to artists that were traveling through 
on the property. Um, so my, my life truly was, it, it was something that I was even finding a bit surreal. Hmm. And I was definitely not taking it for granted, but this was an experience that I don't think I could have predicted what it was going to be. I knew that I was going to, you know, be in bed early, be up early, <laughs> and be tending cows and be tending, there were seven sheep. Um, but it wasn't until I got there that I really understood what it was going to be. And it, as much as it was pattern and repetition, there was something new about each day. Hmm. I learned to milk a cow by hand, and it is one of the, still one of the most humbling things I've done because it is so much easier said than done. And, hmm. and Beppe, who had these huge hands and huge thumbs, would have a bucket that was foaming like the wow. best cappuccino you've ever had, yeah. and I would have you know two inches of milk in my bucket. <laughs> your, your hands would be cramping up. Yeah, tears streaming down. These are down muscles your you've face. never used. <laughs> the muscles you use to milk an animal are muscles that you don't normally use in day to day life as I a regular. I believe that. Human, I believe that. Even so, a cheesemonger. And there are seven sheep, but how many cows were there to milk? There were two hundred and forty cows, but we were not milking all okay. of them. We were milking. Oh my gosh! Probably, my heart stopped for a second. <laughs> probably fifteen cows. So yes, part of the subsidy. Um, um, not to go too long down that tangent, but part of the subsidy is that he was also incentivized by other farmers to graze their herd up up mm. there to give them the nourishing diet that the Alps provide. I see. I see. So he was being paid for that as well. And it was the type of situation that, as I could understand at the time through the Italian, um, you know, Gelito sent me to work with him because he he was young. He was in his 40s. He knew Italian. He wasn't going to speak the crazy mountain dialect to me. And Gelito <laughs> knew him and he trusted him. He thought I was a little crazy for wanting to go, but he said, all right, if you want to go, go with this guy. And so Clutch. he used to buy cheese from him, and he knew that. Um, but, yeah, we were milking probably 10 to 12 of those cows. And we were making cheese, sort of a Castelmagno style, actually, uh, something called Valoon, and then really just Tome-style cheeses, uh, Toma, I suppose mm -hmm. I should say, mm -hmm. um, and aging them below this kind of stone building uh, on wooden boards and in kind of just like a dank cellar. Wow. Uh, the kids and I, one day, I remember we, they found this really fun. We, we wrote a poster and I said, we're going to sell cheese and we're going to bring in any, anybody who goes by. And mind you, anybody who yeah. drove and by the, was the either Italian a hiker elk. or a crazy cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> they were few and far in between, but... You had to, you know, we had to entertain each other right, somehow. Right, little project. Sounds like a fun alpine project. Yeah. So what happened? Did anybody show yeah, up? Yeah, some people came. They liked our sign. They stopped in. Because it, it wasn't apparent that they were really selling the cheese. They also had a little farm shop. I see. Um, but most of our time was spent milking, and then every day we would move the herd. And within, you know, they're, granted, they're grazing openly, but mm -hmm. we had to move them with electric fence to get them essentially to a different paddock of that alpine pasture. Right. Fresh. Um, and as long as we knew roughly where they were, it was a lot easier to go and find them the next day and milk them. It was really the sheep that were the problem. They got out every night. Interesting. And then there was a lot of swearing and echoing <laughs> up and down the Alpine Valley. Um, not Italians what you really might have, have the best swear words. Not what you might have expected from that bucolic scene. No. Um, yeah, and my room was just off the dairy, so I smelled like milk all the time. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Oh, so I, I feel like we've all just taken, a, 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 at least looked through a little window into what that must have been like. Thank you for that, Tess. Um, so, I, you know, next, after this Italian adventure, you went up to England and you worked with Mary Quick for, for a while. And, 
And I'm actually, I, I love Mary Quick, but I'm so, ex- I'm so interested in a different angle to my next question. So I'm going to breeze over that a little bit. No love lost for Mary Quick and the, the amazing Quick's cheddar that she makes up there. Um, but so you, you had such hands-on experiences with cheese in, in, this, in this time when you were in Italy. And, you know, fast forward, you go through your experience in England with Mary Quick and a different style of cheese making, and you get back to the U.S. and you're back in New York City. You've worked at Formaggio, Kitchen Essex. You've uh, had your hands on cheese again as an assistant cave manager at Murray's. And now you're at Lucy's Way. You're running, you're running a busy cheese shop, a, a full cheese sort of cheese shop and cafe operations happening up there with all of the many hats that I know that you wear. And a couple. <laughs> a few. And how do you um, how do you stay close to the cheese, that relationship with cheese that you originally were so, you know, did such a good job of nourishing? That's a great question. It's challenging. It's also not, and I thank Lucy's Way for that, I think, in the stage. Uh, for better or worse, it is a small business, and you do wear all the hats, and being a cheesemonger is still something that is important to me, something I impart in my staff. We're all cheesemongers, hmm. and at heart, you really have to be to sell cheese. And I have shifts. I, I work the counter. Hmm. You know, not as many as I'd like sometimes, but I open, I close. Sometimes I open and close. <laughs> The realities. And those are the moments where I really get to touch cheese and talk to customers. Mm-hmm. We have regulars. We're a neighborhood shop. So we're really about creating an experience. And I think something that I try to think about is something that Firenzo and, and people like Mary Quick and even the project in the South that I did imparted, that it was really impactful to have these examples of, hey, this is the cheese shop where I want to go every day. Hmm. And that's what I try to create at Lucy's Way. I want to work in a cheese shop where I want to show up every day as a consumer. That's great and motivation. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty simple mission statement, actually, for a good retailer, right? Yeah. And, I mean, something Fernando also did and still does do is there was sort of an aperitivo concept where if you came to the shop at the right time, a glass of wine was put in your hand, oh. cheese was put out. Italy. A lot of times it was after we were cutting Parmigiano-Reggiano, which is something he was so staunch about because his father made him wait almost 10 years before he cut his first wheel of parm. He had to watch. Wow. So something my staff will tell you is, you know, I may be lenient on something. On the first day. (laughs) They have to cut parm with the three knives. We have to be that shop. We're never going to use a wire cutter to cut Parmigiano-Reggiano. That's not the way it's done. Traditionalist. I like it. Yeah. Um, and you know, those little things are important. And I think that that plays into the role of the cheesemonger. A lot of great people in our industry are promoting this notion and giving clout and giving respect to the role of the cheesemonger. And Mm -hmm. that's something we try to do at Lucy's way as well. And we do it through those acts of making cheese less intimidating, making it more accessible, but also being the ambassador for those producers who don't Mm -hmm. have a voice anymore, unless they're in the shop with us at the moment, which does happen, but those are rare occasions and it is our job to care for that cheese and to give it a home, to send that person home with a little bit of the story of that cheese. Mm. 
In the Upper East Side, we've learned to read our customers. Some have five minutes, some have about two seconds. Unique, unique <laughs> neighborhood up there. But that's we part do of it our too. Best. Right, right. <laughs> and you know, hopefully that you know something that I'm proud of and what we try and strive for is we take care of our cheese and we take care of our staff. And I try to create an environment as much as possible where people can be themselves. There are some staunch rules that they know I'm going to make them follow, but I want them to be who they are mm-hmm. and come to work as who they are within the parameters of what makes the business run. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a great outlook. That's the kind of teamwork we, we try to impart. You know, we work really hard for not very much money in this industry, and we need to at least be able to show up to a place that we're proud mm-hmm. and excited to be a feel part good, of. Feel good about. Well, listeners, if you have not been to Lucy's Way on the Upper East Side, you got to check it out. Uh, the whole team is really fun. The cheese selection is awesome. Uh, and I heard you had some chocolate, some really good chocolate for Easter. I was bummed that I missed out Chocolate chickens. There may still be a few left mm. from Pump Street Bakery in England, actually. Amazing. Well, as a final question here, Tess, um, I always, I, I've, I've, in my couple of shows I've done so far, as one of the hosts here on Cutting the Curd, I find myself wanting to ask advice from our from our guests and I'm really curious to hear from you what advice you might have for our listeners especially you know those women out there who are looking to become women in cheese or are wondering am I a woman in cheese uh what do you think uh, you might say to them about those ambitions I wondered yeah above the little shop you know even when I was in Italy and in England I have to say that because I wasn't yet a part of the American cheese scene I had that same question. So my advice is really quite simple. Um, We are lucky in this life if we can find something that makes us happy and is also our work. And that is what I found. And I'm grateful for having asked the questions. And the examples I have are people who put in the time. Mm. So as much as you may want a class or want knowledge to sort of be downloaded to you, put in the time, ask the questions, spend time with people who have been doing this for a lot longer than you have, and you will become a much more rounded version of yourself and that confidence about, am I a person in cheese? Yes, if you're in cheese, you're in cheese. If you're touching cheese and working with it and doing all of the things that actually help set that counter and, and set whatever part of any business related to cheese you're, you're setting, um, you know, don't be afraid of the nitty-gritty and get in there and do it and don't expect it to come in a year. You know, I've been doing this for eight years and I learn something every day from my team and I hope I impart something as well, but they teach me. I have a wonderful team and people, I was very fortunate for people in England and Italy to have taught me and I will say, too, I, I was not a rich kid doing it. I took out mm-hmm. loans to do everything. So it was about taking risk, and I'm still paying off those loans. I was fortunate for the room and board, and I will say that that does not exist stateside. So <laughs> I did get to really have at my disposal the generosity of Italians. And, you know, Mary. Qu- I lived with Mary Quick. Mm-hmm. Um, she gave me her little house that is an extension of, of her home. Mm. Um And she's an example where she had no reason to hire me either. And I wrote to her and I emailed her and I asked and she didn't write me back. And then I asked again and then we did a Skype interview and (laughs) 
mm-hmm. and then I moved to England. She gave me a Land Rover, and Amazing. I didn't crash it. <laughs> so it's like persistence and flexibility and, and being a bit of a sponge, it sounds like, yeah. really can help. Well, I guess cheese is my persistence and yeah. resistance in a way. And maybe uh, I think that we have another show in the works there on the on the financial side of things because I'm curious about that whole that whole element to this story and to many stories in the cheese world. I think we all have the ways that we make that work in the dollars and cents uh, side of things. So, wow, Tess, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. This has been such a treat. Thank you. And we got to hang out. And we got to hang out. Yeah. And we're having a beer at Roberta's. So yeah. I see pizza. Yeah, there's pizza here. Can we have that too? We're going to have that too. <laughs> okay. All right, listeners, I'm... Uh, also interested in hearing your stories from navigating cheese careers as women to the challenges you might face uh, financing your cheese dreams. We're going to try something out here where you, I'm asking you to write in with your stories at cuttingthecurd at, her- at heritageradionetwork.org. You can also tweet us at underscore cuttingthecurd. Let's try that out and see what comes of it. So I'm Elena Santigade, and we'll be back next week with more Cutting the Curd. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.